This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saris, maker of indoor trainers, power meters, and bike racks. It's a company of cyclists making products they themselves want to use, like racks that attach to the hitch of your vehicle, which traditionally have had a pretty significant problem. You know, what we kept seeing is when you put your bikes on a hanging hitch rack, um, what happens when then you need to get into the back of the of your car? This is Sarah Ryder, consumer-centric strategist at Saris Racks. And this is the issue of hitch racks. If the rack is on, you're just not getting into the back of your SUV or van. It's blocked. I'm a mom of three kids, and I love to have a, a bike rack on my car. But I also go to the grocery store a couple times a week. I drive a hockey carpool. I... Taking a hitch rack on and off is the very definition of user-unfriendly. So Saris decided to revolutionize the whole idea and created the Glide, a hanging rack that, with the push of a button, pivots the rack away from your car. And really, this thing is amazing. It doesn't swing down and require you to muscle the weight of the bikes. It simply glides back without losing any height. Even with four bikes on the rack, you can do it with one hand. But we tried it on car after car after car with all sorts of different types of bikes. And, you know, we kept coming to the same conclusion of, oh my gosh, this is so easy. Saris launched the Glide with a Kickstarter campaign, and they met their funding goal in three days. Trust me, if you see this thing in action, you're going to want it. The Glide is available in a four-bike model for $4.99 or a five-bike model for $5.49, and it comes in three colors. So head to your local bike shop and check it out. That's the Saris Glide Hitch Rack. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics with Chris Katz. Let me know if this sounds familiar. When you were a kid, you never stopped moving. You played hard and you played often, wearing out clothes faster than you could grow out of them. You could run around all day and wake up the next morning ready to go again. Then you grow up and you take up some sport. Maybe it's climbing or cycling. For me, it was basketball. Whatever it is, you get pretty serious about it. You compete at a high level, and then eventually you find out that you're pretty good, but not world-class. And so you still play a lot, but you do something else for a living. Then, as the years go by, you start noticing that you're spending more and more time dealing with the aches and pains of your sport. In fact, that takes up more time than actually practicing and playing. Maybe you used to be able to run five miles in your sleep. Now, when you wake up in the morning, you feel like you actually did. You start to think, what will this be like when I'm 40 or 50? I mean, how do those guys even walk, let alone compete in Ironmans? This question haunts most athletes, both professional and amateurs. How do you contend with the effects of aging? And is there anything we can do to counteract this slow breakdown or reverse it? That was what journalist Jeff Bercovici wanted to find out. Jeff was dealing with his own age-related soccer injuries when he started noticing a growing trend. More and more elite athletes were able to perform at a professional level at ages considered well past their prime. He wanted to know why. Was it genetics? Special training or diets? And could amateur athletes achieve similar results? If you're outside editor Chris Kyes, the answer is yes. We've talked before about his superhuman athletic abilities, but what you may not know is that he also doesn't suffer from any of the normal problems of getting older. 
As far as I can tell, he's ageless through sheer force of will and smoothies. He simply chooses for professional reasons to tell everyone that he's in his mid-40s. So even though he doesn't need any of this advice, we got him to sit down with Jeff to talk about his new book, Play On, The New Science of Elite Performance at Any Age. We wanted to know what answers Jeff has found for the rest of us. Here's Chris. Um, well, let's start with some of the bad news. Um, beyond just your general wrinkles and gray hair, what's happening to the aging athlete? What are we up against? There's two main things going on. Uh, one is that your your cells become less efficient at, at regenerating themselves. So ev- everything that has to kind of um, regrow uh, does so more slowly and more reluctantly. You know, that's a big part of the reason that that people have so many problems with cartilage injuries as you get older, or, or even just um, you know cartilage wearing down and causing arthritis, because uh, cartilage isn't that great a, a, a tissue at regrowing in the first place. And you know, once once you get a little older, it gets it gets even worse at that, and uh, that becomes a real limiting factor. Uh, the other major change, sort of system level change that you see has to do with power. A big factor that limits the performance of older athletes is the ability to generate power, which means, you know, force uh, over a small amount of time. For uh, So you, you see athletes perform, uh, endurance type athletes manage to sustain their performance, you know, to a much later age than athletes who have to generate that kind of quick twitch bursts of power uh that you that you would be required from something like you know sprinting or you know being a striker in soccer or you know anything anything with kind of explosive force and that has to do primarily with um muscle fibers the fact that you know you lose your you lose your uh quick twitch type muscle fibers at a at a greater rate than you lose slow twitch muscle fibers but there's a couple other things going on there too and what about weight gain i mean it's as you Right about there's been a lot of studies that just show that, um, you know, on on average, as you get older, you're going to gain at least you know five or ten pounds, and a lot of Americans a lot more than that. W- what is that the result of, other than you know bad habits? Um, bad habits. Uh, your metabolism slows down for sure as you get older. Um, I mean, the, the you know the good news about weight gain is that for most people, it, it reaches a point. Um, you know, I think in your in your sixties when it starts to reverse, but that turns out to be because what you're actually losing past after that point is muscle, <laughs> which of course is is denser and weighs more than fat. So not not such good news anyway. Yeah, and then also the, the I was fascinated to learn that like if you're over fifty, it's like fifty percent of us have a bulging disc. Is that just general wear and tear? Yeah, bulging discs. I mean, you know, cartilage is is like that too. If you when they when they do just like random samples of MRIs on people's uh, on people's cartilage, they find all kinds of all kinds of defects and injuries people don't even know they have. Um, you know, again with 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 discs. I mean, you know, another nice slash not nice thing is that uh, you do reach a point where where you're less likely to have a herniated disc as you get older. But that's mostly because your discs have become so desiccated and dried up that there's not that much stuff left in them anymore to to come gushing out. Right, right. I mean, but you do get to the good news and early on, which is, you know, that we can counteract a lot of these um, natural processes and exercise, um, you know, seems to be the universal magic bullet. But um, a lot of it is, you know, 
as the book lays out, how you exercise and your approach to all that. And one of the things that was fascinating was this, there's this myth about the aging athlete. And I think it's partly to do with journalists, which whenever they write about, you know, somebody who's, you know, ex-athlete who's above the age of 35 and performing at a high level, um, there's always this emphasis on this incredibly intense training regimen that's going on. But you seem to conclude that it's actually the opposite, that it's not necessarily that they're overtraining and training so much more than the other athlete, but they're training a lot smarter. And in some, some cases, they're really taking a lot more rest than other athletes. Yeah. So the thing is, it's, it's both, you know, the, the examples that are obvious now when you talk about athletes who are performing um, at the highest levels at, you know, in, in a way that we haven't seen before in previous generations, people who are, are, are excelling past the peak age for their, for their sports. Um, so people like Roger Federer, um, in tennis, um, Tom Brady, obviously in football, someone like, uh, Shalane Flanagan, the runner, um, they, they do train intensely, but they, the real difference from, from, um, I would say previous eras is the way that they sort of balance that, the way that they balance intensity and volume and recovery. Um, you know, we're athletes now are much, much smarter about not, um, they're much smarter about the accumulation of fatigue, you know, training in ways that, that allows them to clear fatigue from their body, uh, the way they need to, in order to uh, perform their best and in order to, um, you know, avoid injuries and, and, and recover so that when they train again, they can go as intensely as they need to go in order to, um, maximize those benefits that you only get from very intense training. So, so there is the, there is the, you know, intensity, the, the going very hard, but it's, it's really controlled, precise bursts of intensity. It's not this sort of, you know, go all out all the time. I mean, that's a recipe for anyone. That's a recipe for, for burning out and uh, overtraining, but especially when you get older and your recovery needs, uh, you know, your recovery takes that much longer. You have to be just really smart about that, finding that balance between freshness and fitness. And if not, there's also a real downside in terms of the, your propensity to get injured. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And and your propensity to get injured in all sorts of ways, uh, because you know one thing that that the buildup of you know, of fatigue does, it actually slows down your your nervous system. It slows down your 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 reflexes and your responses. So, you know, when you see athletes getting um, like crazy looking fluky non contact injuries, you know, think of think of uh, an NFL wide receiver who, who's out there in space, no one's touching him. And then he makes a cut and he, and he goes down on the field and it turns out he tore his ACL. You know, a lot of the time what you're seeing there is he was responding to something and his body didn't prepare its, its muscular, uh, response. It's you know, it didn't coordinate the appropriate muscular response. And that can happen when you get surprised by something, you know, if you're, if your your brain isn't able to, to anticipate, uh, what's happening, the action that's happening and sort of send the right nerve signals to your muscles at as qu quickly enough, that's when you see those kinds of non-contact injuries happen. And the more fatigued a player is, the more likely they are to have that happen to them. So in a lot of the high-level sports and professional sports, especially in, in as you talk about is the the NBA, which <clears throat> it's become much more common to, you know, rest older players on back-to-backs, even younger players too, just to, to prevent that kind of fatigue. 
How should just the the lay athlete, the the amateurs like us, think about um, you know what's going going on in terms of rest and staying fresh to apply to just a, a general athletic life? So a really useful rule of thumb, uh, and, and and I heard this from a, from a guy named his name is Trent Stellingworth. He's a Canadian sports scientist and uh, and coaches a lot of their Olympic athletes. Um, he said the most common mistake that I see athletes making, and this is this is both elite athletes and, and amateurs, uh, is that they go too easy on their hard days and too hard on their easy days. So if if you're training a lot, what you what you want to do is um, you're you're getting specific benefits from intense exercise and specific benefits from high volume exercise, and you don't want you don't want um, to sort of be in that soggy middle between the two, because if you're there, what's happening is, you know, you will, um, if, if you're going too hard on your easy days, then when it's time to do a hard workout, you'll, you'll be carrying a little extra fatigue and you won't be able to work out as hard as you want to. So basically going in, you know, the, 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 the way that this sort of generalizes for anybody is, like really thinking before your workout, what am I trying to get out of this workout? And if you want to go hard, you know, you want to do, uh, you want to be thinking in terms of like small amounts of very intense activity, but keep it short. And if you want to go, if you want to go easy, then you want to be thinking a very large volume of, but you want to be going really much easier probably than, than you think you want to go. Um, you know, elite athletes, tend to, um, they're much better at saying, you know, I'm going to go 90 at, I'm going to go at 90% of my capacity today and actually going at 90% of their capacity. The rest of us tend to say, you know, oh, I'm going to go for an easy one today, but, but you know what? I'm actually feeling kind of good. Maybe I'll push the pace a little bit. And then by the, you know, by the end of your quote unquote easy workout, you're actually really tired and probably wrecked for doing anything good the next day. Yeah. I imagine that this is like a chronic problem, especially now that there's so much <clears throat> emphasis and awareness of, um, high intensity interval training and especially through the CrossFit community that, um, that a lot of people, even though there are incredible benefits from that kind of training are overdoing it. Do you, do you find that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, I mean, when we're talking about volumes of, of high intensity, uh, exercise, I mean, first of all, the, the research on how much of it you need to do to get a, a benefit, you know, to, to get a measurable benefit is, it, it turns out it's we're talking about really small amounts, like you know, like like going um, like a minute. You know, um, they've they've looked at at it's basically a minute is the smallest amount of high intensity exercise where where you can get like serious measurable benefits. So, you know, you have to there's some there's some warm up involved, but we're talking about like a handful of minutes a week um, of all out exercise. And if you're talking about something like um, like let's say like sprinting, you know. After about five minutes, I think I, I think one piece of uh, research I said I saw said that you can you can sprint all out for about five minutes of a week <laughs> before uh, you start seeing negative effects from that. So yeah, something like you know something like CrossFit, the idea that you're going to just kind of crush it in the gym for your full you know hour long workout and you're going to do that four or five times a week, it's just not it's not happening. You know, it's not it's not a good mindset to go into it with. Um, well, and especially the, with the idea that, <clears throat> of staying fresh and needing that recovery time, um, there's a lot of really fascinating new technology in the book that you talk about. Um, you talk about the anti-gravity treadmill, which we've written about it outside, but I hadn't seen as much about, and I don't, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, but Kaatsu, 
this Japanese method of um, of basically cutting off blood flow as you weight train. Can you talk about that and how it works? Yeah. So Katsu is uh, it's it's the name of a company and it's also the name of the of the technology. Um, it originated in in Japan. Um, this uh, this Japanese inventor who is also a bodybuilder. Uh, he he developed these they're these these pressurized computer controlled bands that um, you put around your arms or your legs and they um, they inflate to a you know they inflate to specific pressures to to regulate the amount of blood that's flowing um, through your veins so the the amount of blood that they they basically trap uh, excess blood in your arms or your legs while you're exercising somehow trapping extra blood in the muscles while you're exercising, it it puts pressure on your capillary walls. And that um, extra flexing of the capillary walls that happens for some reason, uh, it basically tricks your brain into thinking that uh, that it's undergoing much more intense exercise than it is. So you have this, um, this, this hypertrophic muscle building response. What this looks like in practice, like I tried out, uh, I tried out Katsu. Um, I had the, the bands around my arms and, um, the the CEO of the company was he he gave me a couple of water bottles just like half liter water bottles to hold and he said you know do do some bicep curls with this and I'm like well how many <laughs> you know I could do bicep curls all day with this and he's like no you really can't <laughs> and uh, I did I did about ten of them and my arms were just totally cooked it was like I was trying to curl like forty five pound weights and that has the exact same benefit as if you had done it with a weight that would give you you know the same you know ten reps to fatigue. Um, I'm not sure that I would say I I I don't think um, it has the exact same benefits. I mean, you know, nobody's nobody's saying that uh, that you should completely stop working out with weights, um, but it does seem to be really helpful at maintaining muscle mass. So, for instance, athletes who are rehabbing from an injury, uh, this is a way that they can that they can maintain their muscle mass. Also, the other thing is it has much lower recovery profile than working out with actual weights. It it uh, it doesn't you know it doesn't tear muscle in the same way because you're not subjecting muscle to those same mechanical forces. So, uh, you know, in in theory at least, it allows you to 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 work some extra weight training into your program without um without the same risk of overtraining. <laughs> right. Um, you know, another thing that that is interesting and it's become pretty widespread recently. And, and I think you call it sort of the low hanging fruit in terms of the stuff that we can really do to counteract the aging process is mobility. Why is that so important? Boy, um, I, I thought that this was just one of the most interesting topics. I, I devoted a lot of space to it in the book. Um, it's, it's important because, um, I mean, just to, to pull out the camera for a second, um, it's, it's basically injury that is the biggest limiting factor on the length of athletic careers. If you talk to, if you talk to athletes about why they retired or, you know, why they, why they washed out of their sport unwillingly way more than anything else, it's, it's injury, you know, e- even in, even in cases, I mean, it, 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 you know, in, in most sports, I mean, it's definitely most in most kind of like team sports or stick and ball sports, it's not just kind of the the gradual slowing down uh or or loss of of strength and power that that sets a limit on on how old you can be and still play it's more often it's you know the accumulation of a number of injuries over time that either um results in bigger injuries or makes it hard to do the amount of fitness training you need to do for your sport or whatever 
So, so because of, because of that, I, a lot of what I looked at in the book is sort of how to prevent injuries, you know, how to recover faster from injuries, what, what sorts of treatments there are for them. Um, and when you look at the science around predicting why people get injured, a lot of it comes down to, uh, to compensation patterns that, that, that happen basically, um, you know, changes in athletes movement that happens when you get injured, uh, basically the, uh, you know, the, the theory behind these is that if you have, uh, limitations in your movement that are, that are restricting your, your mobility through all the, uh, uh, through all the kind of degrees and planes you should be able to, to move comfortably through, that is what results in, in, uh, in future injuries and not only results in future injuries, but also, you know, potentially makes you move less efficiently so that you're, uh, so that you're not performing your best either. Mm. Yeah. And you see, you call it low hanging fruit, I think, because it's really not all that hard to correct. And you went through some tests and describe what what you did and sort of what you learned in terms of um, your own inefficiencies in some of these areas. <laughs> yeah, my my inefficiencies are are, are pretty bad. Um, uh, yeah, I went to I went to a couple of places. Uh, one of the places that I went to is um, a clinic that's run by a company called Fusionetics, and they have one of these, um, you know, basically movement analysis systems. Uh, Kobe Bryant was a, a big devotee of uh, Fusionetics. He said that that it was it was their uh, their work that allowed him to to make it through his last couple seasons uh, after all the injuries that he'd had in his career. So they do things, you know, they basically. Um, analyze your, analyze your range of motion, your, your efficiency, um, while you go through a number of exercises. And like one thing I found from that was that, that I had terrible range of motion in my ankles. I had like really bad ankle mobility and that was something, it wasn't something I'd ever thought about in my life. Like I, I've never had ankle problems. Um, you know, I'd never had any reason to think about it, but <clears throat> it turns out that, that, uh, a lack of range of motion, in your ankles is correlated to all of these other types of injuries um, like, you know, knee injuries, hip injuries, because it basically, if, if your ankle doesn't flex when you are, um, crouching down to jump, say if your ankle doesn't, doesn't flex all the way, you have to get that range of motion from somewhere. So, you know, maybe that means that your knee caves inward, or maybe that means that, you know, your, your hips move in a different way. Uh, so you, you really, um, you're, you can get a lot out of something simple, like, you know, working on your ankle mobility for a couple minutes a day, uh, can really have all of these, these benefits on your movement and your injury risk that wouldn't necessarily be obvious. Yeah. And did, did you notice any difference in, in terms of, uh, how you felt when, say you played soccer? Yeah. I've, I mean, I've, I've definitely noticed a difference in, um, the, in how, how healthy I've been able to stay since I've, since I've really been thinking, I mean, I, one thing that, one thing that has really stayed with me, uh, after, after learning all of this stuff about, uh, about movement science is that I think much more now in terms of mobility and stability, uh, when it comes to my workouts, than I think about, you know, how much weight I can lift or how fast I can run. Cause it really comes down to, you know, mobility. Can, can I move in all the ways that I need to and stability, you know, am I strong and stable in all the ways that I need to? Uh, so yeah, something like that. Absolutely. I, I, I think I, I, I definitely stay healthier because of it. Um, 
I was sort of surprised when you got to the topic of food, just because that is such a another buzz area. And um, obviously, Tom Brady has gotten a ton of press about his rigid diet. Um, but your main takeaway seemed to be, you know, beyond just eating healthy, is it, sort of to shrug because it, the science is just too too young or just hasn't matured enough in terms of what we know really about certain kinds of foods and, and some of the claims around them. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's too young in the sense that if, if there's, um, the, the science is pretty settled on this, the topic that there is, um, a way to eat for most people that is, that is the best way to eat. And as long as you're basically eating that way, you know, th- that way, meaning, um, a lot of, a lot of vegetables, um, you know, a lot of whole grains and, uh, you know, not a ton of meat, uh, lean meat, like that sort of thing. Definitely not, you know, very little sugar. As long as you're eating that way, um, you don't need to have all of these weird exclusions. Like, so Tom Brady's diet sort of, you know, famously, he, he doesn't eat a lot of things like he doesn't eat strawberries. He doesn't eat, uh, tomatoes and potatoes because they're nightshades. He, uh, um, you know, he doesn't drink coffee, he doesn't drink alcohol. You, you don't need to, there, there aren't really any, um, there's no proof that a diet like that conveys any special benefits to the vast majority of people. Now, where there's some room for doubt is I, I do think, you know, over the next, I don't know how many years, but let's say 10, 15 years, we're probably going to find out that uh, that that there are genetic or epigenetic or um, um, uh, microbiome, you know, microbiomic, if that's a word, differences between people that influence how we process different types of foods. You know, it could be that uh, that that you know, because you and I have different genes, I, uh, you know, I, I might be better off eating a, a, a diet that's uh, that's low in fat or you know, you might be better off uh, eating eating no sugar at all. Uh, it, it's a, it's a it's a theory that makes sense. It's just that we are a very far we are a very long way away from from actually being able to uh, to study people and and say you know here are the foods that you should eat. I mean, there was one guy I talked to who said that um, that he can test athletes. He can look at their immune systems uh, using blood tests and tell them what the five foods that are the most efficient for their immune systems are. And this guy's got some really famous clients like, you know, Dwight Freeney. He was counseling Dwight Freeney and uh, he told Dwight Freeney, the the NFL pass rusher, he said, uh, you should only eat beef and pinto beans because those are the (laughs) most, those are the the foods that your body can, can use the most efficiently. And, and he went on that diet for, you know, during the playoffs, but uh, it's not, if if there's proof behind that uh, behind a system like that, he's keeping it very well hidden. Let's put it that way. Right, right. But in terms of um, in terms of the aging athlete, protein does seem to be incredibly important. Yeah, that's if if you're asking what, about the specific nutritional needs of aging athletes, um, that's one of the only ones where there is where there is a large amount of research saying you know this is a change that makes sense. I mean for 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 most. For most very active people, uh, for most fit people, they're not getting as much protein as they should. Um, you know, the protein recommendations that uh, 
you know, the USDA, uh, the USDA's official protein recommendations are really for, for sedentary people. So most of us should be eating more protein. I mean, us meaning active people. And F, once you pass 40, give or take, your body becomes less efficient at turning, um, at turning the protein you eat into new muscle because of this, um, this phenomenon called anabolic resistance. So the cure for that is basically just eat more protein. Um, other than that, there, there aren't a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of athletes as they get older, they, they're looking for ways to, you know, they're, they're very anxious to, to find new ways to extend their careers. And a lot of them make this dietary change or that dietary change. And they say, well, you know, this is the thing that really helped me. Um, and, and, you know, while you can't discount anyone's personal experience, there's, there's just no proof that, that the types of changes there, the types of diets they're talking about have any special benefit for, for older people. Um, and then the one other, the, in terms of a supplement gelatin, tell us about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause that's, that's another, um, that is one of the other very short list of, of dietary, uh, interventions that, that does seem to have some promise for older athletes. Uh, basically gelatin, which you can consume in different forms, um, including bone broth, uh, it, it supports, um, it supports the, the regrowth of, uh, of, of tissues like ligaments and, and cartilage that, uh, that are made of, of collagen. So, you know, just having kind of free floating that, that free floating collagen in your body from, from, uh, eating it, um, it seems to help if, for instance, you have a torn tendon that you're rehabbing, you know, your, your tendon, uh, tendons heal faster if you're supplementing with collagen. Hmm. Do you take it? Yeah, I do. Actually, I put it in my smoothies. Um, and, and by the way, not just, not just torn like an injury, but, you know, I mean, every time you, every time you work out, you're, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're putting micro tears tear. in your muscles yeah. and, yeah, exactly. So if you're a runner, for instance, you know, a runner, you want to have, uh, you want to have nice stiff tendons. Uh, well, you know, what's happening there your, is, is your, your tendons are forming new, um, new crosslinks in the, in the, the matrix of your tendon tissue. And, uh, those crosslinks are made of cartil, uh, of, of collagen. So yeah, if you're, if you're a runner, um, eating, I, I mean, I would, I would say, based on my research, uh, it's a good idea to put a little, a little nice little scoop of, car, of uh, collagen in your smoothie, like I do. <laughs> How does it taste? Doesn't it really affect the taste? No, don't taste it at all. I love bone broth, though. You ever you ever drink that? Yeah, I love that. And that has that's basically the same thing, right? Exact same thing. Yeah, you can do it. Um, there doesn't seem to be any difference in in how you consume it. You can eat Jello. You can uh, do whatever you want. Um. So there is, as you write about, there's one advantage that aging athletes seem to have, and that seems to be even though your reaction times decrease, I think you say after about age 24, which is pretty depressing, but um, the decision-making ability uh, can increase, especially if, if you're dealing with an athlete who has a ton of experience in a certain sport. So describe that. What, you talk about chunking. What is chunking? Chunking is a uh, it's a it's a cognitive process where your your mind uh, groups together different pieces of information and then interprets them as as one unit as a as a chunk. So you know when you see when you're reading 
you see uh, words rather than seeing individual letters, right? That's chunking. Um, or if you are, you know, if you're a, a baseball player, you're a hitter. Um, after you've seen a defense play the shift a few times, you don't need to see where everybody on the field is lining up to know the shift is on. You can see, you know, the second baseman just cheating over a few steps and instantly your brain knows here's where everybody's going to be on this play. Uh, so chunking is something, you know, is a phenomenon that happens with experience. And the the more experience you have in your sport, the, the more it can group pieces of information together into chunks and chunks uh, allow your brain to uh, to process information more quickly. So where we see chunking having a really, a really powerful effect is in sports that have a lot of complexity to them. Um, and the, the easiest example of this would be looking at something like the NFL, where, I mean, if you look at the average age of quarterbacks going into the playoffs over the last um, 15 years or so, you know, something like two thirds of the quarterbacks over age 35 who've ever made it into the playoffs, it's happened in the last 10 years. And that's because this game has gotten so ridiculously complex now. You know, it's almost um, it's almost a given now that quarterbacks aren't playing their, you know, they haven't really mastered the game until um, until they've been in the league for at least five years. And that was never the case in the past. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I read that part, it was the, the one thing that sort of said <clears throat> to me, maybe I shouldn't give up on soccer since I've already got this w wealth of built-up knowledge. That why not use that to my advantage? Yeah, I mean, look look at who we're talking about in the World Cup right now. I mean, look at who, you know, both of the best uh, soccer players in the world are, are over 30. And, um, you know, Lionel Messi, he, he uh, this was, this was um, even true in, in his last World Cup. He runs less than anyone else. Uh, at his level in soccer, he I think uh, just this last season in the Champions League, he did uh, the least running of of any uh, forward in the Champions League. And he, in the last World Cup, he did the least running of anyone who wasn't a goalkeeper. Um, you know, it's it's all about like the more complex a sport is, the more it it rewards uh, it rewards experience and you know. So I talked to this guy, his name is James Galanis, and he's he's the coach for uh, Carly Lloyd, you know, who's the, um, you know, she was she was FIFA's uh, best, best woman soccer player in the world, I think two years ago. Uh, and and the way he put it is he said, you know, fast minds beat fast feet. It's it's uh, in, in, a, in a sport like soccer, it's the the um, it's really much more the ability of your of your brain to process information quickly that that determines success and failure than it is being the fastest runner on the field. Hmm. And so after all your, the research you did, um, do you expect that, you know, now a lot of, a lot of this stuff is like trickling down that we're going to see more Tom Brady's and Yarmir Yagers that are performing well into their forties at a high level? I think we're already seeing it. Um, yeah. I, I think that, I think, what we're seeing now is the first wave of athletes who have the tools at their disposal to really slow down their physical decline or you know keep their keep their physical decline at bay um, to a point where they're able to really fully realize the benefits that come the the, the mental and emotional, and strategic benefits that come with aging. And it's not just faster mental processing, it's also better emotional control. That's a really big one. Uh, there's a there's a, a you know fair amount of good research showing that older athletes are better at 
keeping unwanted uh, emotions from negatively affecting their performances. I mean, which is basically choking. Uh, so when you take, when you're able to take the physical decline part of the equation and, you know, not, not take it out completely, but at least set it aside for an extra five or 10 years, you see, you know, all, all the other stuff being equal, it's better to be, it's better to have experience it, you know, yeah, it's better to have yeah. been playing your game for 15 or 20 years. Uh, so I think 10, you know, 10 years from now, I don't think that the idea that the best quarterback in the NFL is 40 or, you know, the best player in the NBA is, is 34 or the guy who wins Wimbledon is 36. I don't think these things are going to be unusual to us at all, because I think what we're seeing is just, um, a rebalancing of, of, uh, the physical versus the mental. Right. Right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the book. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been really fun. That was Jeff Bercovici. His book is Play On, The New Science of Elite Performance at Any Age. It's available now. This episode of the Outside Podcast has been brought to you by Saris and their revolutionary new bike rack, the Glide. Check it out in your local bike shop. This episode was produced by Chris Kyes and Robbie Carver. We are going to be off next week, but we're working hard on a new series on wildfires. Because every year we build more and more houses out in the forest, and every year the forest catches fire. So we're going to take you beyond Smokey Bear and look at the story of one particularly insane wildfire, and why it took everyone by surprise. We're also going to look at what I think is the most unlikely thing ever blamed for starting a wildfire. And lots of other things. This is a series we've been working on for a long time. That starts later this summer. We'll be back in two weeks.